0: are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. Today's teaching text is from 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, This is how we know that we live in him, and he is in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he loved us first. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone really good to see you. Um, As Carla said, my name is Gemma. Um, I usually would have introduced myself by saying, I'm Gemma, I'm one of the elders here, Um, but that is no longer true, and I'm soon to be associate pastor, but not quite yet, so I'm just Gemma, somewhere in between this morning. Um, We're in our penultimate week of working our way through 1 John, which is a letter in the New Testament that we believe was written by the Apostle John. And last week uh, we had Patrick from Park Slope and he shared about the first seven verses of this chapter. And now this morning, we're gonna work our way kind of verse by verse through the rest of chapter four. Um, Now right at the outset, I'm gonna just save you some time and tell you that the word love is mentioned 27 times in our teaching text for today. Um, Put your hand up if you'd already started to count. I don't know. Well, um, I'm sure some of you were itching to count them. So I think we can safely say that love and loving one another is going to be a major theme in what we're talking about today. And of course, um, it's the word that's easier said than done, right? So let's just um, jump into this text and see what God has to speak to us this morning. And um, Why don't I pray for us as we begin? Come Holy Spirit. We invite your presence. God, we long for you to teach us by your spirit today. Lord, would you open our ears to hear from you? Would you open our hearts that we might respond to what it is you're inviting us into this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So verse seven, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. So considering love is the major theme of what we're gonna be talking about this morning, let's start by just unpacking that word a little bit. So in English, we have this one word, love. So I can um, love my spouse, I can love living in New York, I can love Polly G's pizza. And this word love does not really truly express the variation of loves that I have. Um, In the ancient Greek, there are several different words for love and the New Testament was written in Greek. So let's just check those out. Eros refers to a passionate emotion, a sensual or sexual love. Philia is a brotherly love, friendship, affection. Storge describes a love that might exist within a family. And agape is an unconditional, a self-sacrificing love. And it's this final word that is being used throughout the passage that we just heard. So everywhere where you see the word love, all those 27 times, it is some sort of variant of this Greek verb agape. John is calling us to love each other with the highest expression of love, a love that is pure, a love that is selfless. One of the most famous love passages in all of scripture is 1 Corinthians 13, and it says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And if you look at the original Greek, it is this same word for love, agape, that is used throughout this passage as well. It's the kind of love that God has for his children. You could insert the name God here instead of love, and all of it would be entirely true of who God is. God is patient. He is kind. He is not easily angered. He always protects. Thomas Aquinas defined agape love like this, to will the good of another. This is the very nature of God, to will the good of his creation. And it's the same mandate that we are being given here. Let us love one another like this, for love comes from God. He is the source of all love, the fountain from which all of love flows. Now you might be thinking, isn't this a bit basic? We've been in this series for a long time. We all know we're supposed to love each other. We're already trying to do that. Can we move on from the love thing into something a little bit more meaty? Well, I wonder if we just look again at this passage from 1 Corinthians 13, and instead of the word love or the name God, why don't you just try inserting your own name in there? I don't know about you, but it doesn't take me very long going through this list to see how far I fall short of the agape love that I'm called to live, how easily I do get angered, how, how regularly I keep a record of wrongs, how often I am self-seeking. We will be returning to this theme our whole lives because this is the journey of spiritual formation. At the beginning of this series, um, Tyler talked about various seasons in our journey of faith. There is the early stage when we first discover God, then the sense of belonging that comes from being part of something bigger than ourselves. And then we move into a season of being super active and productive, putting our faith into action in the world. And then inevitably we move into a more inward stage, which is often characterized by questioning and doubting and uncertainty. This culminates in in a stage that is often referred to as the wall, which to all intents and purposes looks like a crisis of faith. And yet we can reemerge after this wall experience having undergone lots of healing and renewal and restoration and begin a new outward journey that is, uh, it's like we're entirely different on the inside. And the final stage is referred simply as the life of love. People in this season of their journey of faith have been so transformed into Christ-likeness that they can live lives of total obedience and surrender. They're they're not even thinking about how loving or unloving they are, how spiritual or unspiritual they are, because it's just as natural for them as breathing. And this is not just for the spiritual elite, for pastors or nuns or monks or desert brothers and fathers. This is the invitation to all of us The spiritual journey is an invitation to practice the way of Jesus by living a life of love. Now, obviously, this call to love is not a new commandment. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about loving one another. We've talked quite a bit in this series about the Shema, a Jewish prayer which is taken from Deuteronomy 6 and includes these words... And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your strength. And we've also talked about how when Jesus quoted the Shema in the temple, he added these words from Leviticus, and love your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus even goes as far as to say that we should love our enemies. A while back in this series, Tyler introduced us to the phrase um, siblings and strangers and the idea that God calls us to love and show hospitality to the people we already know and have relationship with and the people that we don't. But in the context of this teaching text, John is not primarily interested in the ways that we love the stranger or the world at large. He is primarily encouraging mutual love amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. This is about loving our siblings, those we are in close relationship and community with. This is a word about love specifically within Christian community. It's like he's saying that the church, the body of Christ, should be like a mirror reflecting to the world what the agape love of God looks like the next verse everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God now what does that mean Um, well this verse echoes John 3 where a man called Nicodemus who was a Pharisee came to speak to Jesus and he came at night because he was curious about Jesus but he was still a little bit uncertain and he said this rabbi we know that you're a teacher who comes from God for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. When we accept and receive the work of Jesus, he lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is like being birthed into a new reality. We enter into an abiding union with Christ and everything that is his becomes ours. It's sometimes called the great exchange. He takes all of our sin and brokenness and we get all of his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 says it like this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This renewal comes through our union with Christ through his death and resurrection. The word know in verse 7 is the Greek word genosko, which speaks of a deep knowing and intimacy. You might remember the last time um, I was sharing, I was talking about John 15, the vine and the branches, and that idea that we become joined to Jesus, his life is in us. So this knowing is not a casual knowing about or thinking about occasionally. It's a deep personal knowing that comes from that abiding relationship, that intimate connectedness with Jesus. We find the same word in this verse from John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In the next verse we read, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So this verse is obviously the reverse of the previous one. We can't claim to know God in a sense of that deep personal relationship if his life and his love is not evident in us. Scripture says that a good tree will produce good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, agape love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. When the life of Jesus is in us, the life of Jesus should pour from us. Love, you see, is the real litmus test of true discipleship. This verse tells us that God is love. Very familiar words to us, I'm sure. And no matter how long we journey with Jesus... We're only ever really scratching the surface of how magnificent his love actually is. Because when we talk about God, we must remember that we're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. In Psalm 108, we read that God's love is higher than the heavens. A.W. Tozer said that trying to describe the love of God is like trying to hold the ocean in your arms. When, God, when John says God is love, He is not giving a definition of God in the sense that he's equating God with love and love with God and saying that they're identical. That if we somehow are worshiping love, we're worshiping God, that would mean that we were worshiping an attribute of his personality and not the inconceivable, inexpressible personhood of God himself. Tozer goes on to say, when it says God is love, It means that love is an essential attribute of God's being. It means that in God is the summation of all love so that all love comes from God. And it means that God's love, we might say, conditions all of his other attributes so that God can do nothing except he does it in love. Nothing God ever does or ever did or ever will do is done separate from the love of God. And this love of God is not just a fondness or philia. It's not just storge, familial love. It's self-sacrificial and it's emotional. God feels pleasure for you. He delights in us. God is happy in his love for you. Zephaniah 3 says, he will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. Song of Solomon says, you have captured my heart. Some translations say, you have stolen or you have ravished my heart. I can try to describe God's love for you, but ultimately love is something that has to be felt. In Ephesians 3, the apostle Paul prayed that believers would have the power to grasp the width, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of God, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that they might be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Julian of Norwich said it like this, For our soul is so specially loved of him that is highest, that it overpasseth the knowing of all creatures. That is to say, there is no creature that is made that may fully know how much and how sweetly and how tenderly our maker loveth us. If we read on, it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This verse might sound very um, familiar because it's very similar to the famous John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. Jesus is the agape love of God in action. And because of his death, we have life in him. Galatians 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We live through him. This verse also tells us that God loved us first. Um, My daughter often argues with me that she loves me more, and I try to explain to her that I will always love her most because I loved her first. And my grandfather used to tell me, um, God is always previous. I've sometimes heard people talking about God constantly lapping at the shores of people's lives. In other words, God is always the initiator. And any initiation on our part always begins with the initiation of God. He loves and we respond to his love. I've told this story before, but many years ago I was chatting with a friend, much more wise than me, and um, and I was saying to her, you know, I just really feel that I need to love God more. How do I make myself love God more? And she just looked at me and she said, you know, I think you might have it the wrong way round, because what you really need is a deep revelation of how much God loves you, and that is what will change everything. And she was right. It's when we truly encounter the love of God expressed in the work of Jesus on the cross that a response of love gets birthed in us. And the Holy Spirit fans that into flames and that enables us to love other people in the way of Jesus. Verse 11 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This repetition of dear friends reminds me of when Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. We are invited into friendship with Jesus. And just like any good friendship, we spend time together, we grow in a relationship of love and trust as we expose the hidden and vulnerable parts of ourselves. And as we do that with Jesus, we become like him too. And we start to live in the way that he did. So how did Jesus love his disciples? What sort of love did he model for them and us to follow? One of the best examples of this is found in John 13. Um, Last week, Patrick um, told the story from John 12, where Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with perfume, and she she soaked his feet with her tears, and she dried his feet with her hair. I have another feet story for you. It's in the next chapter of John. And um, it's where in the middle of the Passover meal, the last one that he's gonna have with his followers, Jesus takes off off his robe, and starts to wash the feet of the disciples. Um, I spent time in Calcutta during monsoon season, and I have never seen rainfall like it. And that's coming from an Irish girl. So if you're ever planning a visit, don't go in July. I wouldn't recommend it. And I would get to the end of the day and my feet were totally caked in dirt. And that is the picture that I often have when I sit down to read this passage from John and imagine Jesus washing the dirt from the disciples' feet just stop for a second and imagine yourself there watching that scene unfold. Maybe even imagine yourself as one of the disciples and picture the humility of Jesus. Not only the fact that he, the son of God, the creator of the world would wash their feet, he would wash the feet of the one who would betray him He washed the feet of the one who would deny him. He washed the feet that would run and abandon him on the night when he was arrested. And picture for a second that basin of water, (laughs) the second disciple's feet being washed with the water that washed the dirt off the first disciple's feet. It reminds me of one of my memories of our prayer room, if you were there back in February. Um, If you were there, you might remember there was a little bowl of water and you could go and just sort of rinse your hands to remind yourself of just like the cleansing that we receive in being in relationship with Jesus. And there was one day I was there and it was mid morning and I noticed that the bowl was just a little bit murky. And I thought, you know, my initial instinct was like, I should go and I should go and empty that out and put some fresh water in there for the next person. And actually I felt a check in my spirit. I felt like the Lord said, no, Gemma, don't. Because this is a picture of pilgrim community. This is what it looks like to be in community. Community is messy. Other people encounter the dirt in your life and you encounter theirs. Much like the basin of water that Jesus used to wash his disciples' feet. And then this is what Jesus says to them. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Loving one another with that agape love means serving one another. It means preferring one another. It means taking the lowest place and being the least. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us he has given us of his spirit the word live here in the greek is the word meno which i talked about last time it means to dwell to remain like in that sense abide in me and i will abide in you it's like he's saying when we as a community of believers love each other well when we love each other with this self-sacrificial agape love that jesus modeled for us the presence of god dwells richly among us through the power of the holy spirit And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. This verse pretty much answers the question of how do I know if I really am a Christian? Some of us as kids probably went up, you know, altar call a dozen times to become a Christian. We acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, the son of God and we embrace his work of redemption on the cross. Romans nine says it like this, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we lean on and trust in this finished work of Jesus as the ultimate expression of the love of God, a love that created us, a love that redeemed us, a love that disciplines and forms us and a love that keeps and sustains us. As we journey with Jesus, as we grow to be more like him, his work is brought to completion in us. We are made in his image. And the journey of faith is about growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus. John writes, there is no fear in love. The basis of this is trusting in the goodness of God, believing that he desires and intends for our good. We were singing of the words from Psalm 23 earlier, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Often in my life when I'm experiencing um, intense moments of fear, I feel that inner stirring from the Holy Spirit just whispering, Gemma, do you trust me? Fear comes when there is a lack of certainty that our good will be intended and pursued. I, I once find a little toddler lost in Disneyland. Gosh, I can still remember. He was probably about three, younger than Ember. He didn't speak any English. And so I was trying my best in broken French to communicate with this little guy. And even though I wanted so desperately to help him, he was so scared because he didn't know me. He didn't know whether I was going to do him good or harm. And I will never forget just when he saw the familiar shape of his mum running towards him. And he just went sobbing into her arms because experience had taught him not to be afraid in the arms of his mum because he'd learned to trust that she desired his good And in the same way, as we grow in our relationship with God, as we experience time and time again that he wills our good, we learn to trust in that love and it drives out fear. Now, we will forever live in a world of things that cause us to fear in some way. There are so many things that we cannot control. But from the same psalm that I just quoted, we also read, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid for you are with me. His is the love that always stays. His is the love that we cannot be separated from in Christ, no matter what life throws at us. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. In verse 19, John reminds us again of the truth that we love because he first loved us. And then he finishes the chapter by saying, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this commandment, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. John is being really clear that love for God and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is inseparable. In the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus unpacks a lot of familiar Jewish laws and, and he gets right to the heart of them. And in a similar way that we read in the gospels that he physically turned over the tables in the temple. In the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like he's turning over everything on its head that people thought they knew. And in Matthew 5, he says this, you've heard it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus was saying, look, you're all so proud of the fact that you're keeping to the letter of the law. Do not murder, check. Do not steal, check. But I want you to pay more attention to what is going on inside of you, to your interior world even more than your exterior world because if the interior is good, the rest will follow. What's the point of boasting about checking all the boxes of how your life looks on the outside If inside your heart is filled with envy and jealousy and pride. Here we see Jesus using the term brother or sister. So, in this context, once again, we're talking about what it looks like for us to love those we're already in close relationship and community with. So, let's get a little specific. What does it look like for us as a community? What does it look like for us as Trinity Grace Church, Williamsburg? Well, first off, I want to say that there should be no hatred in this room. In this room, there should be an absence of bigotry, of racism, of prejudice of any kind. In this room, there should be no divides. Like Patrick said last week, no hyphens, because the agape love of God crosses all boundaries and all divides. Galatians 3 says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The way that Jesus related to people in his day was revolutionary. He crossed divides of gender, of race, of religion, of socioeconomic status, so this room should reflect a continuation of what Jesus started, because the kingdom of God encompasses all. And if it isn't true in here, don't think it's going to be true out there. Jesus also became a servant to his friends. He laid down his life for his friends. He said, no greater love is there than a man laid down his life for his friends. There was a stage in my life, I was so on fire for God. I was like, Lord, I will go anywhere for you. I will do anything. I will move to this country and love those people. I will move to that country and live amongst those people. And I felt like the Lord said, yes, I know, dear. But will you stay? Will you love faithfully the people that I've already given you? Will you love them with the same passion and intentionality as you plan on loving strangers that you've never even met? Because you know what? It was actually easier for me to plan on loving strangers who had not yet had an opportunity to offend me or disappoint me or hurt me. When I went to Calcutta, I went wondering if God was calling me to be there as a long term missionary. And obviously, when I was there, I did some deep diving into the wisdom of Mother Teresa. And one of the things she said was, There are Calcutta's everywhere, if only you will have eyes to see them. So find your Calcutta. And my Calcutta was not there. Sometimes it's easier to go, to go to that place, to love those people. It can even seem glamorous and more holy. And sometimes God's just asking us to be faithful where we are, to learn to love the people that we sit next to on a Sunday, that person in our community group who annoys us, the people who are more difficult to love. On Saturday mornings in Calcutta, as we walked out of a mother house to the places we were going to serve on that day, and we walked out through this archway, and above the archway was written, Today there are no great things only small things with great love. Mother Teresa had so many amazing and profound things to say about love because she was one who did live a life of love. And one of them was simply love one person at a time. Whether we are out in the world interacting with strangers or whether we're interacting with brothers and sisters inside this room, we're just a person meeting a person and we love one person at a time. I think another important factor in this conversation is forgiveness and reconciliation because community is really messy. And if you stick around here long enough, you will be disappointed and you will be offended because none of us are perfect and as a result every single Christian community is flawed and we are no different. In Matthew 18:21 Peter asks Jesus this question, Lord, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Seven times? And notice he's not referring to strangers or even enemies. He's talking about brothers and sisters. He might even be thinking of a particular thing that one of the other disciples did against him. And how does Jesus respond? Not seven times, but 77 times. The number seven is symbolic of completion in scripture. So maybe even Peter thinks he's being pretty generous and holy by saying, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77 times because that symbolizes bindlessness. You just keep on forgiving and you keep on forgiving and you keep on forgiving. I read somewhere once that we continually need to forgive others for not being God. In other words, no one will ever love us with perfect, unconditional agape love other than God himself. So we need to constantly forgive others and they need to constantly forgive us for not loving each other in the way that only God can. We will be lifelong learners of trying to love like that. Henry Nouwen says it beautifully like this. When our broken love is the only love we can have, we are easily thrown into despair. But when we can live our broken love as a partial reflection of God's perfect unconditional love, we can forgive one another our limitations and enjoy together the love we have to offer. So we need to pay attention to what's going on inside our hearts in relation to others. We need to be quick to forgive. And I also think... We need to be really careful about the words that we use inside this community. Proverbs 18 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. With our minds, we can choose to bless and we can choose to curse. We can choose to speak words of love and we can choose to speak words of hate. Sometimes in the company of other Christians, I think we can all too easily let our guard down and somehow think that being with other believers gives us a license to say whatever we want. And I would love us to be a community of people who choose to speak well of each other, even behind closed doors. A few years ago, I met an elderly man called Charlie. He's in his late 80s, and he's lived most of his life heavily involved in politics. You know, he's a photograph with his friend, John F. Kennedy, up on his wall. But the thing that impressed me most about this man was not all the rich and famous people he's rubbed shoulders with or all the interesting stories that he had to share. The thing that impressed me most was the way he spoke of every person he uh, talked about with genuine affection and honor, it was actually really disarming to sit in the company of someone who chose to speak well of everyone, even when they were not in earshot of the conversation. Even when he could have easily chosen to focus on the negative, he chose to highlight what was good. And I don't think it was because he was unaware of people's shortcomings. I actually think it would have required less energy to magnify the negative. But his language of respect and honor was startling because it was so rare. So often we live in a culture of complaint, especially inside the church. I know how easily I can cast judgment on people or things that happen in this space. But wouldn't it be amazing if we could be known as a community of people who embody a culture of honor, if we spoke well of each other, if we held each other in high esteem, and that doesn't mean we become blind to each other's faults, and it doesn't mean that we fail to call each other out when we're not living God's best for our lives, but it means that we choose to shine a light on what is good, we encourage what shimmers, we call out the gold, because isn't that what God does for us? Tearing someone down in order to build ourselves up might feel good for a hot second, but it is too costly in the long term. Philippians 4, Paul tells us this, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Last week, if you were here, we said our final goodbyes to our dear friends, Matt and Sarah. And there was this beautiful moment in the service when we first started to applaud them and then spontaneously around the room, people started to stand to honor them. And I actually feel like that was a prophetic picture of the invitation God is giving us to step more and more into embodying this culture of honor. There is also a very practical nature to loving each other well that goes beyond just words. It means putting our bodies and our time and our resources in loving service towards each other. Um, right now we are in the midst of a move we're packing up our apartment and it got me thinking to when we first moved to our apartment in Greenpoint six years ago and we didn't know anyone who lived in Brooklyn we just knew that we wanted to live here and a dear friend from LA had introduced us to a couple who, who went to a little small church called Williamsburg Church that met in this building and grew into this community And they told a couple of their friends from their community about us. And so one Saturday, Maya and Steve Davis, who many of you will know, showed up having never met us and carried all of our possessions up three flights of stairs. And it is because of the love and kindness of those people that John and I first came along to this building. And as a church community, we've been through a lot of transitions and things have changed dramatically from the first Sunday when we walked into this room and there were 15, one five, people sitting at the back of the room on couches. But you know what? The love expressed to us through those people is the reason why we committed to making this church our home. If anyone wants to help us move on Saturday, we're doing it again. I might mention you in a sermon in six years time. Give you a little shout out. Um... But seriously, as we grow in number and size as a community, let's not ever lose that beautiful expression of loving one person at a time, of showing up with our bodies as well as with our words and allowing other people to do that for us when we are the ones in need. So we help one another, we serve one another, we honor one another, we forgive one another, we become like Jesus and we love each other the way that he loves us. If that's the way that you would love to choose to live as part of this community of believers, I'd love to just invite you to stand and we're gonna pray. just take a moment just to be quiet and just let all of this everything we've heard just settle in our hearts you might want to open up your hands that and it just is a, a way to express an openness to receive from the Lord an openness to hear from him and even just in the quietness of your own heart just just ask the Lord privately by yourself lord what what do you have for me here today what is it you want me to take away from this space You know, I'm gonna ask you to do something even more uncomfortable than putting your hands out in a posture of receiving. Why don't you just take the hand of the person next to you? Let's just do that cheesy thing of holding hands across the room. Because this is is about all of us. Let's just pray together. Lord, we so want this to be true of us. Lord, would you help us to love each other like you love us? Holy Spirit, even now, would the agape love of God flow through this room from person to person, filling us up and pouring out from us? Lord, I pray that our love for one another inside of this community would actually be a witness to this neighborhood and to this city of your perfect love. Lord, let us be a people of forgiveness, of honor, of service. May your kingdom come in Brooklyn as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. We're all sweaty. You can stop holding hands. (laughs) I know, worst, worst time of the year to do that, right? Anyway, um, we are going to just begin to worship with some singing, and we're going to move into a time of response, and um, maybe actually, if you're on the prayer team, I'd love to invite you to come on forward. Um, As we move into a time of response, there are a few specific things that I want to share that might um, relate to how you want to respond to God today. There may be some of you who, like I did, find it easier to think of loving people elsewhere. And yet you're feeling that stirring to recognize that your Calcutta might be a lot closer than you think. And if that's you, as we sing, I would love to encourage you to come forward. Maybe take a moment to kneel on the prayer rugs and have some private prayer just between you and God and just ask him, Lord, where is my Calcutta? Where is the person or the place that you're inviting me to pour my love into? You might want to ask someone in the prayer team to pray for you. I also think that there may be some people in this room who really wrestle with fear and anxiety. And today you really just want to have a deeper awareness of the experience of the perfect love of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, please take a moment to come and ask someone to stand with you and pray that over you, that perfect love would cast out fear. Maybe for some of you today, your response looks like speaking a word of honor or encouragement to someone. It doesn't have to sound super spiritual. It could just be like, hey, I see this in you. I've noticed this about you. I think it's great. I want to bless and encourage you. Let's start to model and embody that culture of honor even as we respond today. And finally, I think for some of you today is about forgiveness and reconciliation. In this community, we try as best as we can to model reconciliation after Matthew 5 and 18. And Matthew 5 says, if therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And if you know that you have hurt or offended someone in this community and it hasn't been resolved... Or there's some way that you have felt hurt and never, never talked about it and you know that resentment is building and that you're unable to love in the way that we've talked about today. You have an opportunity to deal with that today. It might be a husband or wife. It might be a roommate. It might be someone in your community or uh, your community group or a leader within this community. They might not even be here in this room but you could take a second to text or call or leave them a voicemail. Whatever it is, I would invite you to follow this scripture that we have just heard and go and deal with that first and then use this communion table as an opportunity to celebrate the forgiveness of Jesus and to rejoice in the gift of reconciliation with a brother or sister.